so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. I was trying to do a Giphy in Slack. <laughs> Uh, why, why were a you giphy. trying to do that? She calls it a giphy. That is what Guys, it is. it's called gif. It's not a gif. It's a gif. Okay. It's a gif. Is it gif like gif. the peanut butter or gif no. like this? No. It's like the peanut butter. It's a G. It's a gif. Yeah. All right. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about artwork here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hey, everyone. And Brent Leatherwood. Hey, y'all. So we are still coming to you from quarantine. We're excited about this episode. And later in our show, we're going to talk to a special guest, John Inazu, who has a new book out with Tim Keller. John is a professor of law at Washington University, and we're excited to talk to him later in the show. But so we can get into it, Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Okay, guys, this has been a busy week. So first off, I want to start with an important question that many pastors are asking. When will our church buildings reopen? And Joe yes. Carter, he's answered that somewhat. Of course, nobody knows for sure, uh, but he's answered some questions that pastors are having about reopening and what things they need to be thinking about and um, how they should be communicating with their congregation. So we'd encourage you to check that article out. I thought this was a great piece by Joe because he also serves as an executive pastor uh, at an SBC church. And I just think it's really interesting how executive pastors and senior pastors are thinking through these types of decisions that they have to make. And obviously, Joe, he's he's a brilliant thinker. Uh, so he's got like an algorithm and, and stuff that, that he kind of relies on. But uh, at the end of the day, it is. This is why it's critically important for our pastors to be in a dialogue with their local leaders so they have a good sense of when it will be a good time to reopen. Yeah, Brent, that's right. And just a little inside info for listeners. Joe Carter writes for us all the time, and we have a debate within the office as to whether or not he exists because— not many of us have actually seen him. That's right. He may, in fact, be an algorithm. We're, we're not he sure. He might be an algorithm. He probably is part algorithm. But we're thankful for you, Joe, if you're listening. Next up, we're looking at how the coronavirus is testing international religious freedom commitments. Aaron Mercer has a piece about this, and he looks at places like China and India. And he mentioned that the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights said that during this time, human dignity and rights need to be front and center, not an afterthought. This is something that's very important to us as the ERLC, and we'll continue to keep our eye on that. Um, next up, we have Melissa Folter and Jonathan Holmes, both counselors addressing an extremely important topic, and that is the rise of domestic abuse due to social isolation. And in this article, they try to help us see as the church how we can 
um, serve those who are facing this. And uh, one of the things that they said was that in the amount of time you read this article, approximately 170 adults will, will experience abuse at home. And that's before the stress of social isolation. Yeah, one of the things that we uh, talked about a lot kind of in the early part of social distancing when we were no, we, we knew uh, that the coronavirus was going to have us uh, inside of our homes for a while is we, we started to try to think about what are those uh, what are those things that are going to be more easily overlooked and so the last two articles that you highlighted Lindsay uh, are both uh, some of those things so in terms of international religious freedom you know we're, we're thinking through and looking at different cases in the United States uh, where it seems like religious freedom in certain places uh, might be being threatened or, or governments might be overreaching but there are other countries in the world uh, that, that don't have nearly the kind of protections uh, that we enjoy here in the United States. And, you know, we are thinking, uh, we, we need to be mindful of what, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, but other people who might be experiencing true religious persecution in other parts of the world uh, could be experiencing due to or in light of uh, this pandemic. And in the same way, uh, when we think about the rise of domestic abuse, it is, uh, I've, I've seen multiple studies uh, and surveys in the last few weeks that have shown that as people are in their homes, even though there's something like some good news, like violent crime has gone way down during this time, uh, domestic abuse has gone way up because people are in their homes together. Uh, and some people, that their homes are sadly just not a safe place. So it's another thing for Christians, not only to be mindful of, but to be pr- prayerful about and to uh, certainly give attention to. One of the things I think is interesting, Josh, you kind of touched on this, is as we get deeper into this experience with coronavirus, uh, it is helping to surface with people who it probably just doesn't hit them at the front of their mind, but it's it's starting to surface the way that this virus is affecting uh, vulnerable populations. And both of these uh, pieces do a really good job in laying out uh, some perspective in that area. Yeah, and that's why we're thankful to be able to serve SBC churches with pieces like these. And then finally, what I want to mention, and we're going to reference it later on in the podcast, is a Q&A uh, between Jeff Pickering and Luke Goodrich, who's the vice president and senior counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And he asks Luke some questions about government restrictions and navigating the tension between church and state during a pandemic. So we've seen, as Josh mentioned, some of these religious liberty issues uh, in the United States, um, some questions that pastors have been having, like, can the government prohibit in-person worship services or what about drive-in services or online streaming? And Luke does a really good job clarifying um, some answers to these questions. So one of the reasons I really liked this article was because we've been kind of dealing uh, theoretically with how church and state relations should be conducted. And then this past weekend, Easter Sunday, uh, we saw a handful of churches, again, we should clarify, a handful of churches around the country where local authorities were trying to prevent drive-in services that seem to, by all accounts, maintain the social distancing requirements. And so there was a tension there, and this piece actually helps churches think through, what should I do if that happens in my backyard, and how should I think through this? So this was a really good practical piece, and I think it's really helpful and shows what we do at the ERLC. 
I think that's exactly right, Brent. And, you know, we have been trying to uh, stay not not only on top of the situation, but trying to help people stay informed as this situation is developing. You know, we have, since the very beginning, tried to encourage pastors and churches and Christians uh, to take a posture of cooperation and good faith when it comes to the government, uh, both local government, state governments, and of course, observing any of the, the guidelines coming from uh, the president's uh, White House Coronavirus Task Force and the CDC guidelines that are coming out, uh, because pastors and churches are critical allies right now for this for the state as we are a society uh, seeking to combat the spread of coronavirus at the same time we've been warning since the very beginning that it would be very easy in certain uh, circumstances for the state to overstep here and to put unfair restrictions on churches. And we have seen that in a handful of cases. And the RLC has been uh, not only attentive to, but engaged on each of these as they have been popping up. But as Dr. Moore said uh, recently, or he said this week in a uh, live interview he did with Baptist Press, uh, the real story here is not these handful of cases, which are serious and we want to you know, give uh, due attention to, uh, but the, the real story here is the fact that across the country, we have seen churches voluntarily uh, comply, and we've seen the government work with and in good faith uh, communicate with and cooperate with these churches to allow Christians, and not and not just Christians and churches, uh, but people of faith to continue to worship and to practice uh, as freely as possible during this pandemic. I guess I should say, while we're talking about Luke, uh, that he actually released a book uh, last year called Free to Believe, which is about religious freedom. And uh, everywhere I looked, I saw people commending the book. Dr. Moore uh, blurbed the book. It won all kinds of, of awards in terms of people who do their you know best books of the year and those category distinctions. Uh, so it's definitely a resource that I would recommend that people check out. Yeah. And with that, guys, uh, that's your look at what's on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that moves us to our culture section for the week. So Brent, uh, tell us what's going on in the world of culture. All right. So Easter Sunday night uh, started off on a, a, a scary note uh, that is kind of personal to me. So a group of tornadoes swept through North Georgia and into East Tennessee, right around Chattanooga. As a matter of fact, one of the tornadoes went by my parents' house. And uh, it was a very scary moment because I had to call and actually wake up my mom uh, to make sure that that she was being safe. But what was interesting is these were gigantic tornadoes. So the one in particular that went through uh, Hamilton County, Tennessee, had winds in excess of 145 miles an hour. So it was, it was very scary. Uh, several people lost their lives and over 150 buildings were leveled by the tornado in and around the Chattanooga area. So very scary. So, and this follows um, just a month after Nashville experienced its own deadly tornadoes. So, uh, for whatever reason, Tennessee has uh, experienced quite a bit of nasty weather. Yeah, I grew up in Florida with hurricanes, and tornadoes are so terrifying to me because they're unpredictable. So, uh, someone even on my Facebook feed, their their house was destroyed in the storm. It's just so sad. Mm -hmm. And it, the added danger, obviously, of this all occurring in this moment of coronavirus, particularly for our first responders, uh, it's a lot to be praying for. So on a good note, let's move over to uh, some news that came out this week from Amazon. So a few weeks ago, our listeners may remember that we had surfaced that they were hiring uh, 100,000 new employees. Well, now they're creating an additional 75,000 jobs to help serve customers during this unprecedented time. And so that's that's really good news because as we're going to talk about uh, here in just a little bit, the economic news is not looking good right now. 
uh, we're now up to 22 million Americans who have filed for unemployment benefits over the last four weeks. Yeah. And I saw in the New York Times that the near, the, the quote is this, the near decade of resurgent hiring more than recouped the 8.7 million jobs wiped out in the recession, 2008 and nine, that came just before. So I guess that just means that all of those gains have been wiped out yeah, I mean, to put this in perspective, what we're talking about is more than 10% of the labor force. I think the statistic was 30.5% of the labor force uh, being out of work just in the last few weeks. So this is this is significant. And I know as we're talking about, you know, all of these different uh, numbers we're keeping track of during uh, social distancing and at, during the coronavirus outbreak, one of the things we're looking at is economic numbers. And just remember that, that these are real people. These are real families. And this is affecting people uh, all over the United States and all over the world. And so that those numbers are just staggering. Right. And not to be uh, all doom and gloom, but we should point out that the International Monetary Fund looked at the global economy this week, and they did say that there are worrying signs that we may be looking at an economic slowdown that would be worse than the Great Recession. Yeah. And today and the weekly, we, our lead article is about that, written by none other than Joe Carter. Those economic numbers are definitely related to the global pandemic. And businesses and colleges are starting to look at what does it look like once we begin reopening, whether that's a hard reopen or a soft reopen? There was an interesting news story this week. Universities are beginning to consider canceling in-person classes until 2021. So that makes me immediately think of our sister entities, the Southern Baptist seminaries that are a part of the convention and how they are thinking through this moment and serving their students. Yeah, I cannot imagine, you know, being a student right now, we, we've spent a lot of time thinking about and talking about uh, high school seniors right now who are not getting to participate in their high school graduations. Imagine being a senior who is looking forward to not only finishing this year, but then going off to college next year. There's just so much uncertainty uh, right now about what the future of higher education looks like in the short term. And it is just fundamentally changing the way people expected to live their lives over the next 18 months. That's right. And in the business world, we saw um, kind of in our supply chain. So a number of economists are beginning to worry about uh, supply chain being affected as the coronavirus uh, gets further and further into America's heartland. So a worrying note on that front, the largest pork producing facility in America uh, over in the Dakotas was closed because it became a hotspot for COVID-19 which was really concerning. So on the international front, there's actually uh, two glimmers of hope. So uh, certain EU countries are starting to take some first initial steps to come out of lockdown and isolation. And that's interesting because maybe that will provide a preview or a roadmap of what it looks like to come out of lockdown here in the United States. And elsewhere in South Korea, citizens there have been heading to the polls. They headed to the polls this week for their national elections, despite the coronavirus uh, outbreak. And so they've got very strict kind of social distancing guidelines that they're following there. But obviously, we want democracy to continue apace. Obviously, I think it's great that uh, they're able to continue uh, with their election process. And that's something that, you know, in the United States, we're putting a lot of thought into even now. 
I never expected or anticipated seeing a time in the United States where people would just count on wearing masks when they leave their homes. But if, you know, if things continue and we are still uh, during this kind of period of social distancing, when we get to the elections in November, I can't see a situation where where we wouldn't proceed with the elections. But you may very well may find yourself standing in line at a polling place wearing a mask. Uh, on a lighter note, the Walmart CEO said that we're now in the hair color phase of panic buying, meaning that folks are realizing that their hair color may be changing because they're not able to keep their hair color appointments. Oh, man. And so they're they're starting to <laughs> hoard hair dye. Lindsay? Yeah, we're about... We're, not me, thankfully. Oh, I don't okay. have gray yet. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I haven't been blonde for a while, but we're about to find out what people's real hair color is whether that be dark hair from someone who is blonde or gray hair, which yeah, is a crown of, of wisdom, it. you know. That's, hey, right. that's right. And I I have to admit, uh, me being home with the kids is probably going to prematurely gray both my wife and I. It is. But you know what you can bring back, guys? Uh, frosted tips of the 90s. That's so great. So one of the people in our small group, we were trading back like old pictures of ourselves because, you know, we're all stuck at home. What are you going to do? So just flip through pictures in your phone. And so we start sending like these old photos. And one of the guys did indeed have the whole like, you know, frosted tips look back mm -hmm. in the day. And, uh, you know, I actually almost went for that, but it was one of those, my parents were like, Hey, we're going to ground you if you come home looking like that. And so that was ultimately what dissuaded me. Now my parents like, you know, or, or anyone else wouldn't recognize me because it's been so long since I've had a haircut. That's right. And Lindsay, to your point, who didn't want to be Zach Morris back in the day? <laughs> who didn't want to be Zach and who didn't want to be Kelly? That's Zach right. And Kelly. Hey, Josh, aren't you staying at your parents right now? Every time you walk by, are they like, whoa, that's a stranger. Better get him out it of our house. It is kind of like that. It is kind of like that, you know. So back in Nashville, we my family lives in a tiny apartment, and so we decided to come back to North Carolina for a while to stay with my parents in a house that is well, it's much larger than our apartment, and you know it comes with grass, which is something that kids find pretty pretty enjoyable. So that's what we've been uh, taking advantage of lately. Guys, our audio engineer just shared an epic picture of him with the frosted tips, and it made me gasp. As Josh was talking. And he looks pretty fresh, not going to lie. Well, speaking of frosted tips, why don't you tell us about pop culture, Brent? <laughs> exactly. That's where I'm going <laughs> next. Thanks, Lindsay. So for our listeners not named Philip Bethencourt, Apple unveiled a new budget iPhone this week that maybe is starting to excite all those Apple fans out there. Did y'all have any reaction to that announcement? Can I get a TLDR on what a budget iPhone is? Right. Uh, I it's didn't a even less know expensive iPhone. Oh, I got it. I'm all about less expensive. Uh, oh, there, uh, apparently, it takes uh, some of its design cues from the iPad. So, I mean, at this point, iPhones are getting bigger. Pretty soon, they're going to just cannibalize the iPad. It's just going to become this, this thing that you hold with two hands up to the side of your head. Elsewhere, in the sports world, uh, so it appears that the first professional sport to come back will be the Professional Golf Association, the PGA Tour. Uh, so potentially we will see Tiger Woods stalking the links uh, early this summer. They're looking at an early June return. Brent, is that something people say? Do they say stalking the links? Stalking they the say links. stalking the links, especially if you're talking about Tiger Woods. Get it? Tiger? Oh, okay. Oh, yes. That's, Listen, there you I go. will become just a golf clever, fan just to have... Yes. I'll become a golf fan just to have sports to watch on TV. 
There you go. You think well, about another sport. I mean, golf, golf seems like one of those sports that would be, you know, the first to emerge from this period because it's kind of like walking around by yourself. Social in the distancing. Open air. So, right. You know, you, maybe you can't use a caddy or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And people will be so relieved. Although people have been having a lot of fun watching these sports reruns. I mean, they've been rerunning epic games from baseball, basketball, football. And uh, it is, you know, it, it has provided a lot of entertainment during this time. Absolutely. And and on that note, uh, Josh, we should point out there's a there's a really good chance that a lot of us are going to be tuning in to the 30 for 30 on the final season of the Chicago Bulls dynasty. I know that we've got a couple of Bulls fans on the ERLC team, and I'm sure that they're going to be watching Michael Jordan and everything about the, the 90s that comes along with the Chicago Bulls successful run. Man, all the feels, all the feels for that. It's going to be it's going to be fantastic. And people have been clamoring for this for a long time. That's right. And it's finally here Sunday night. Uh, also, and this gets me excited, America's pastime may return. So one of the things that doctors are wrestling with is how to team sports return. Well, it it looks like baseball may be the first out of the gate. We're trying to figure this out. There's a couple of different plans that they're looking at, but essentially they're looking at housing teams in quarantine hotels testing them multiple times a day and using just a handful of sites to conduct games out west in Arizona and in Florida where the Grapefruit League uh, would happen. So it's going to be really interesting uh, to see how this happens, but I'm excited for just the possibility of baseball. Baseball seems like another socially distant sport. I mean, you stand on the bases and they're all more than six feet apart, right? <laughs> Just put less yes. people in the dugout and call it a day. <laughs> you know, if Lindsay was in charge, it occurs to me, if Lindsay was in charge of the MLB right now, we'd still be watching baseball. That's right. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that was great, Lindsay. <clears throat> uh, yes, to, to clarify, uh, they're much further than six feet apart uh, when they are on the bases, as you said. Uh, on a sad note, the XFL, the XFL... <laughs> Can, for can you believe it? Good. Can you believe Good. it? Brad? We were so excited for the XFL to return and it, you know, met an untimely demise. We talked about it for exactly one week. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and from the entertainment world, I should point this out. I thought this was great. So CNN had a piece looking at the wisdom from Tom Hanks movies. Uh, for this pandemic and quarantining at home. And Tom Hanks has done a lot of movies that are relevant to this moment. I mean, who could forget Castaway? Yeah, and when he and his wife were being treated in the hospital in Australia, did you see that they gave him, they rolled in a volleyball? What was that friend's Wilson! name? The little volleyball? Wilson. Wilson, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Wilson comes back for quarantine. And Tom Hanks, that's a, that's a, I mean, it's timely because he was also the host of the return episode for Saturday Night Live, which was an interesting experiment. Basically, they conducted the entire thing from cast members' homes and on Zoom, and that's the plan going forward uh, for the foreseeable future. I, I don't know how it's going to play out, but I give them credit for trying. Yeah, Brent, one of the things that is uh, most interesting to me is that, you know, SNL here is just like kind of the latest example of, of one more place uh, in the world of culture uh, where we are seeing people try to make 
do try to try to continue on with normal practices uh, while we're all you know staying at home. And so one of the big questions that this brings up for me is which things are we going to go back to? Certainly, we expect to see SNL back in a studio uh, making live TV. But as we were looking at offices uh, that are all gone fully digital and people who are you know changing fundamental things about the way that they live their lives day to day or the way they do their jobs or, or so many other things, uh, it kind of makes you wonder what what's going to stay the way that it is now uh, and which things are kind of going to go back to more of some kind of normal pace. Yeah. And as far as SNL at home and Jimmy Fallon at home, I think people are actually enjoying getting a peek into the real lives of these celebrities. So yeah, Kelly Clarkson with no makeup on, you know, I think the the person on the other side of the screen relates to that. Jimmy Fallon with his kids basically booing his monologue, you know, that's gold. So I think this is actually going to be really good for those folks. That's right. It's a humbling I experience. I think that's right. Also, who says folks? But I can't let us move on. I've been corrupted by somebody in the office from the North. Speaking of all these things that are changing and speaking of Jimmy Fallon's kids booing him as he's uh, doing his opening monologue, that reminds me. So our friend, uh, Dean and Sarah, he's a pastor at City Church down in Tallahassee. And uh, every year, I mean, their, their church goes all out for Easter. And they they rent the uh, Civic Center there in Tallahassee and they throw like this huge Easter service. And it's always such a huge deal uh, where they're proclaiming the gospel. People are coming. It's, an, it's like every year, it's the thing they look forward to. It's like one of their big highlights. And uh, obviously they weren't able to do that this year despite having planned to do so before before coronavirus. And uh, as they were doing their Easter services at home, they were doing their live stream. Uh, Dean's, I think Dean's oldest son said to him, dad, that was a fine sermon, but it would have been way better if this service was at the Civic Center. And you could just like, it just crushed Dean, like crushed his spirits. Like he's like, yes, son, it would have been so much better. Uh, But anyway, that's just a moment of levity and a shout out to Dean and the good work they're doing at City Church uh, before we move on with this. There you go. So Lindsay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) there you go. So Lindsay, Josh, that is your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to our friend, John Anazu. John has a new book out uh, with Tim Keller. He's a professor at Washington University, and we're looking forward to talking to him now. So John, tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us if you could, what's one thing that God is teaching you uh, in this season of life? Yeah, um, you know, so I have a a couple of different roles I play. My primary vocational role is as an educator, a a, a law teacher and a teacher of undergraduates. So I'm I'm working on uh, trying to focus well and finish well this semester, which has been pretty challenging. I also direct a nonprofit ministry called the Carver Project, which is focused on Christian faculty and students in higher education. And then I serve on the board of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And so in those three different spheres and roles, I've, I've been thinking, well, first of all, I've just been working a lot. So I'm, I'm looking forward to a bit of a respite in a few weeks. But I've also just been trying to think and pray, what, is it, what does it look like to do ministry differently, uh, but also be faithful to where we're called to be? And, uh, you know, probably like many of you, uh, there are a lot of people in crisis right now in my near and far circles. So how can I be available? Or I guess as a you know, when Jesus is going to heal Jairus's daughter and he stops because the woman touches them on the way, touches his cloak and he stops. And I learned this uh, back when I was a young life leader where somebody pointed out, you know, this is Jesus stopping to do ministry on the way to ministry. 
And so in a very busy season, I'm trying to figure out where are the moments of ministry on the way to ministry when I get an unexpected email or a contact from somebody who's, who's really in crisis and, and asking myself, well, can my class preparation wait a bit? And it's, it's, it's not, there's not an easy answer to that question, but it's, uh, it's something that's been on my mind. Well, from what you're describing, John, the areas where you serve and your vocation, it's in the hub of culture and culture shaping aspects in our society, which is higher education. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. So can you tell us what you and others around you are paying attention to right now? Yeah. I mean, there's so it's there's so many really challenging issues right now, some from the current moment and some from background challenges. I, I think the entire uh, realm of higher education, it was already facing some enormous challenges, and those challenges have just been exacerbated by the public health and economic uh, crisis that we're in. And, and so what does it mean to be in partnership with people whose institutions, and in some cases, whose jobs are now on the line? And how do we shepherd institutions into a new normal that's not just going to be a temporary new normal, but how, how do we adjust to that sort of thing? And then on, on a more personal level, I've been thinking quite a bit about the the mixed blessing of being stuck at home. I've got my wife and I have three kids at home and they're all trying to do their, you know, version of what is now effectively homeschool for all of us. And, and everyone's on zoom calls and trying to check in. And that's, uh, and the upside of course is like, you know, many families were spending time around the dinner table. And I, I usually spend a fair amount of my life traveling and speaking and that's all shut down. Uh, so, so there's an adjustment that's positive, but a, a worry that I have or a concern I have that I hope Christians can uh, respond to is I, that it would be a bad thing if we came out of this with a kind of a renewed focus on the family mentality that forgot our broader witness and responsibilities to the larger body of Christ and to the community around us. So yes, I'm, I'm enjoying dinners at home with my family, but yes, I also want to get back to inviting people to our table, to going out to other places, to engaging with my community. And I think uh, you know, there's there's talk in a lot of Christian circles right now about people slowing down. I'm, I'm not personally slowing down, but people who are, who are finding more time to be with their families. I think that's good, but I think we also have to keep very much in mind who we're called to be missionally as a body. Mm. Speaking of, of missional, so you have a, a new book out with Tim Keller about being faithful to the gospel while respecting those with um, different beliefs. What are a few key things that we as believers need to remember uh, as we seek to live that out? Yeah, so part of this book draws from an earlier book I did in 2016 called Confident Pluralism and applied them into a more distinctively Christian discourse and context. And, and really three, three ideas or principles flow out of that argument, that the importance of humility patience and tolerance. And, you know, there and elsewhere, we've defined those in, in some careful ways so as not to fall into some of the misuses of those terms. But but Tim and I and the other authors all, all think of these as very consistent with and reflective of Christian virtues, particularly faith, hope, and love. And there are ways in which humility, patience, and tolerance map up and align with and are really cultivated by faith, hope, and love. So that's one of the takeaways a second takeaway that comes to mind, and, and we deliberately brought in 10 friends to write autobiographically-based chapters around themes of their own lives, of how to do this and how to engage well across difference. And it points to the importance of, of storytelling and friendships and relationships. And I think 
a lot of you know people who are prone to write and reflect as I am can tend to be pretty propositional or just wanting to make an argument. But but it, so this book was a reminder to me and hopefully to others who read it that we are human beings embedded in stories and narratives, and we have to be able to tell stories that are honest, but that are also um, compelling because because we are image bearers who are created to live and tell stories. So that's a part of it. And then the I guess the third thing to point out, a major theme that comes out of this book is just the significance of the immense challenge that we still have uh, within the church to work toward uh, racial equity and healing of racial differences. We still have so far to go. I mean, even COVID-19, or we're realizing now, is not a race-neutral phenomenon because the background uh, structures and, and, and shaping mean differences in access to health care and housing and these kinds of issues. And so as Christians, both uh, in-house, but also as we relate to others, there is an urgency that remains around issues of race and class. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we we collapse a gospel message into a, a liberation theology or a social justice frame, but it does mean that we're attentive to the, the many, many ways in which the gospel calls us to to reach out uh, across our differences and to recognize our own faults in, in creating some of those differences. Yeah, and sometimes those differences can be uncomfortable. And you've mentioned, you just mentioned a previous book where you've written about pluralism being a healthy attribute in culture. And so are you sensing that as something that people are still valuing right now? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I one of the points I've made for a number of years is how we sometimes, in moments of crisis or strong calls to unity, we are able, at least temporarily, to fixate less on our differences. And this current public health crisis is, I think, creating a mixed response. You know, on the one hand, there's lots of controversy, for example, about Samaritan's Purse up in New York City, and to what extent do partnerships work there. But on the other hand, I mean, when people are when people are very sick and dying, and when first responders are, are having to work uh, very quickly and very carefully, uh, the, the, there's not a lot of you know disagreement about what your politics are. You're just you're often and 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 I think in the best cases we're seeing this around the country where people are coming together across political, religious, and other differences and saying, right now we have to care for our communities and the most vulnerable, especially in our communities. And we have to put others before ourselves. And I mean, not everybody's doing this. There are outliers within the church and there are outliers uh, outside of the church who are acting in much more self-interested ways. But I, I do think that by and large, we're seeing people work toward uh, a shared sense of protecting other people, especially vulnerable people. And, and that's a, I think that's a, a witness to the possibility of bridging differences. That The challenge, though, is we cannot live the entirety of our lives in the midst of crisis. I mean, it's just not sustainable. So what happens when we slow out of this and return to more normal times? What does it look like to remember how we've partnered creatively and across difference? That's the, the next question I think that we need to be thinking about. Well, John, so this uh, this last question is designed to be just a little more lighthearted. So you're the first legal scholar that we've hosted on the ERLC podcast. So how exactly does a legal scholar pass time uh, during this moment of isolation? 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm not doing much legal scholarship, unfortunately. So I, I do think sort of the close quarters with family uh, for all of the upsides do create some uh, distractions of sustained uh, thinking and writing. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to uh, get out and exercise a little bit, although I've been uh, I've been a little bit um, not very consistent with that and um you know just trying i think like all of us just trying to keep some sanity in the midst of uh some real blessings but also some real challenges uh, so that's where i am today at least john that's so good and uh look we just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today uh your work in helping believers look like or think about what it looks like to to navigate a, a culture that is very diverse uh to be able to maintain uh integrity and a faithful gospel witness while also uh respecting and living in in peace and harmony uh, with those who don't share our beliefs has been something that has been helping people for a long time. And we're really excited about uh, this book that just came out uh, with Tim Keller. And uh, we hope that a lot of people will take the opportunity to buy it, to read it and to benefit from it. So uh, we just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. And thanks for reaching out. I really appreciate it, especially this week as the book comes out. And, and thank you for all the work you all are doing. We're living in uncertain times. All of our lives have changed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and none of us know what the future holds. How do we begin to think through recent events and learn to cope with them? In a new book called Where is God in a Coronavirus World, Oxford professor John Lennox examines the coronavirus pandemic and shows us how the Christian worldview can help us make sense of recent events. Lennox reminds Christians that we have a sure and certain hope to cling to when everything around us changes. Go to thegoodbook.com to pre-order now. So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things that we've been talking about with one another. Brent, why don't you kick us off this week? So a local news station in Nashville offered up what I thought was a, a timely resource. It's called youprobablyneedahaircut.com. Mm, man, that's pretty on the nose right now. And so basically the, the website works like this. It will connect you with a barber who can walk you through how to cut your own hair. The site offers two types of haircuts for men, which I thought this was interesting. The least expensive is $18 for a 20-minute haircut. And they encourage you to leave a $5 tip. Well, as a guy who definitely needs a haircut, as I said earlier, uh, you know, I I hope not. But if I have to, now I know where to go to, you know, remedy this disaster. For now, though, I'm just going to stick with wearing a hat every time I have to be on a Zoom call. Well, the way that this works is as soon as you book it, they will send you a secure Zoom link and he'll walk you through what to do. And these barbers, it assures me, are very highly vetted. So you're not just going to get, well, someone like me who would just buzz off your beautiful mane. Uh, Josh Wester. Man. Beautiful Maine. <laughs> well, thanks, Brent. Uh, for mine, uh, kind of pivoting back to that idea of things that we're doing differently right now. So, uh, you know, Together for the Gospel is a biannual conference uh, that happens in Louisville, Kentucky, and it is usually, uh, you know, more than 5,000. It's, it's a pastor's conference, but it's really just for pastors and ministry leaders. And uh, they had to, you know, cancel it this year, or at least they were not able to host it uh, physically there in Louisville. So instead of that, they they set up a T4G live stream that happened this week. And then in addition to that, uh, Southeastern Seminary there in Wake Forest, uh, not far down the road from where I am right now, uh, also, in light of the coronavirus, made plans to host what they call the Southeastern Symposium 
Gymnasium, where they had uh, basically an online academic conference where people came uh, to to give papers and students or you know anyone interested was able to register and to to watch these lectures as they were delivered. And I think a lot of that stuff is going to end up online, both from T4G and from Southeastern's uh, symposium. And so even even despite the moment that we find ourselves in, I think it's cool to see uh, these organizations be able to adapt and to uh, provide the kind of resources and information that, that is still really useful to people, even as we are, you know, uh, dealing with this time of coronavirus. So that's my thing. Lindsay, what's on your mind? Okay, so I have a couple little joke memes and sayings and whatnot, and then one other thing. So just scrolling through the internets and saw a couple of funny things. So there was this meme that people posted in our work Slack that says, whoever's supposed to go to Nineveh, just go already, which is hilarious. Um, And then have you seen how people have been sharing their senior pictures in order to stand with the senior class 2020 to make them feel better? I gotta admit, I'm a little... I'm a little cynical about that because I'm wondering how many people actually care about the seniors versus, hey, here's another picture of me that I can put on the internet. Right. Well, Bart Barber posted on Twitter, which I thought was hilarious. He said, I've seen my senior picture. Looking at my senior picture ain't going to give nobody any helpful measure of support, which is so true. (laughs) I'm not going to voluntarily post my senior picture out there on the social medias for everyone to see. So, And then another one that somebody posted Um, It says, when my son failed a math test before March 1st, 2020, did you not study? Are you not paying attention in class? Do you need a tutor? And then today, when my son fails a math test, well, buddy, we did our best. I saw someone else say how he helped his son get a (laughs) 45 on his math quiz. He was like, man, I'm failing. So anyway, it just makes us appreciate school and teachers, people that know what they're doing. And then my legitimate thing that I wanted to share was... um, the Gettys every Tuesday are doing a live hymn sing with their kids. They have their kids join in too. And so I'll, me and my little one-year-old, she'll sit there and watch it and she loves it. So parents with little kids or kids of all ages, really, um, it's just a good way to start your day with songs that praise the Lord and get my heart into a right place and also occupy my child. The Gettys are a huge hit at our house. Our family loves the Gettys and they're immensely talented, but um, we call them because I have small kids who can't say things. So the name of the Gettys big annual conference is Sing. Uh, And then when they do these hymn sings, so sometimes at our house with our kids, we call it the hymn song, sing song. And (laughs) anyway, our kids just love to to hear these hymns that they know and to be able to (laughs) sing along. But uh, anyway, I just wanted people to have the benefit of hearing about the hymn song, sing song. All right. Well, that's a good note from the Wester household. So Josh, what's in the inbox this week? A good yeah, so, note uh, from the Wester household. I thought it was fine. <laughs> Jeez. <sighs> All right. Yeah, Brent. So this week we uh, have been getting a lot of questions from people who are paying attention to some of the religious freedom concerns that we've seen earlier in this week. And so uh, kind of synthesize those into one question, which says, what do I do if my church thinks that our religious freedoms are being threatened? So the first thing we would do is, A, make sure that you are in communication with your local officials. That has been a helpful thing that we have personally done at the RLC on behalf of Southern Baptist Churches. And we know of, because they've they've let us know, that a number of Southern Baptist churches are doing across the country. And that has actually mitigated so much out there in terms of misunderstanding. And that's the other thing. 
assume that your local officials, because there is a lot going on uh, in their world right now, they may actually just not understand what you mean by a church service. So one example that we know of is a local municipality had put a shelter in place order uh, in and it had not exempted churches. And what we found out is they thought that it just meant churches were, were going to keep gathering. And instead, what we needed was for the pastors in this particular city to be able to go into their church to record a, a message for Sundays that could be broadcast out to the congregation. So that was very limited individuals involved in that. And it obviously did not involve a um, congregational style setting. And then beyond that, Maybe that's actually not what's going on. Maybe there is a, a real violation of religious liberty that's occurring. Contact us at the RLC uh, or contact our friends, our partners in one sense, uh, ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom. That's that's what they do. They protect churches when religious liberty violations are occurring. Or another uh, organization that we work with, Beckett, that we mentioned earlier uh, with the Q&A that Lindsay highlighted. That was really great, Brent. And, you know, we obviously at the URLC want to stand ready to help churches uh, if they find themselves in a position where they think that uh, that their, you know, their religious liberties might be legitimately being violated. We want to uh, always be ready to to serve those churches and to help them. We just want to say thanks to everyone for listening to the podcast and helping spread the word. Just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today uh, in the show notes. And if you like the podcast and you want to help more people discover it, you can go into your podcast app and leave us a rating or a brief review, or you could share uh, the episode on social media. Uh, and we've also had a, a new friend join us on the podcast, uh, Megan Smith, who's been helping us not only curate content, but uh, help us just make the podcast better. For Brent and Lindsay and for myself, uh, we want to sign off here and we'll be back next week with more content.